0: <laughs> what am I? What, what, what fear am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the fear. I'm not talking about any other. I'm not talking about Nasser. I ain't talking about Castro. That's small-time potatoes. I'm talking about the fear that causes the Nassers and the Castros, and that causes things that we know not of. I will read you some some poems of this fear. Yes. Here's a piece of poetry entitled, The Wheel Go Round. Again, it's that fear of the inexplicable, which is the eternal enigma. And it's not to be so simply answered as to just call it the why. That ain't it. It's also the where. It's also the question that asks, of what? Which is the most sneaky of all the questions. This is the, and of course, these are all questions And within the space of 10 minutes, there will be 400 people who will leap up with the answers. To be replaced, of course, within the next 10 minutes by 400 other people, waving books, usually, in hand. I went into a sort of house and watched some sort of wheels go round. They were the hugest kind of wheels and made a pleasant sort of sound. It was a gaily lighted place, with many windows near the top. The wheels kept going round and round. It didn't seem that they'd ever stop. It was the strangest sort of house, all full of numbers set in glass, and thoughtful men all dressed in blue, and shining dials, and things of brass. I walked up to a man in blue. I stopped the man in blue and said, what makes the shining wheels go round? The fellow shook his snowy head. What makes the shining wheels go round? I asked the oldest man in blue. He took a piece of chalk he had and wrote a number, bright and new. He wrote a number, bright and new. He brought a little book he had. He took the book and in it read What makes the shining wheels go round? The wheel go rounding one is dead. The wheel go round and one is dead. I took the little book and I found myself all dressed in blue. And as I looked, my hair turned turned snow. of the moon's a balloon coming out of a keen city in the sky, filled with pretty people. And if you and I should get into it, if they should take me and take you into their balloon, why then we'd go up higher with all the pretty people and houses and steeples and clouds, go sailing away and away sailing into a keen city which nobody's ever visited, where always it's spring. Everyone's in love and flowers pick themselves. When Sam goes back in memory to where the sea breaks on the shingle, emerald green and white foam endlessly, he says with small brown eyes on mine, I used to keep awake and lean from my window in the moon, watching those billows break and half a million tiny hands and eyes like sparks of frost would dance and come tumbling into the moon on every breaker tossed and from all across, from star to star I've seen the watery sea with not a single ship in sight, just ocean there and me and heard my father snore. And once, as sure as I'm alive, out of those wallowing, moon-flecked waves, I saw a mermaid dive, head and shoulders above the wave, plain as I, as I now see you, combing her hair, now back, now front, her two eyes peeping through, calling me, Sam, quiet like Sam, Sam. But me, I never went, making believe I kind of thought it was some someone else she meant. The lovely there she sat singing the night away all in the solitudinous sea of that there lonely bay. Perhaps he'd smooth his hairless mouth. Perhaps if it were now my son perhaps if I heard a voice say Sam morning would find me gone to where that's the question of the which and of the why and of the now and of the perhaps slowly silently now the moon walks the night in her silver shoon this way and that she peers and sees silver fruit upon silver trees one by one the casements catch her beams beneath the silvery thatch couched in his kennel like a log with paws of silver sleeps the dog a shadowy coat, the white breasts peep of doves in a silver feathered sleep. A harvest mouse goes scampering by with silver claws and silver eye, and moveless fish in the water gleam by silver reeds in a silver stream. But, 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 but what stream and why silver? Which is the loneliest and the most frightening of colors, silver. For that reason, one of the few colors people really speak of, my favorite color. It's always green or red or blue or yellow, rarely silver. And the one who says silver, be careful of that one. Be careful. Who calls? Who calls? Let it go into the next. Who calls? Who? Did you call? Did you? Who called? Somebody there. Nah, my imagination. My imagination. When the night wind howls and the chimney cowls and the bat in the moonlight flies inky clouds like funeral shrouds sail over the midnight skies when the footpads quail at the nightbirds wail and black dogs bay the moon then is the specter's holiday then is the ghost's high noon as the sob of the breeze sweeps over the trees and the mists lie low on the fen from grey tombstones are gathered the bones that once were women and men. And away they go, with a mop and a mow, to the revel that ends too soon. For cockcrow limits our holiday, the dead of the night's high noon. And then each ghost with his lady toast to their churchyard beds take flight, with a kiss perhaps on their lantern chaps and a grisly grim good night till the welcome knell of the midnight bell rings forth its jolliest tune and ushers our next high holiday, the dead of the night's high noon. Mm -hmm. Again, the eternal belief that we're all alive always. Og and Charlie are still with us, looking over our shoulders with their dim, uncomprehending sad gray eyes and we'll be looking over the shoulders of someone else with our dim incomprehending sad gray eyes a thousand years from now the great dream that everyone still lives and the bones dance at midnight and the revels go on and on the revels the song and the grisly kiss continues to go. The cat was once a weaver. A weaver. A weaver. An old, and withered weaver who labored late and long. And while she made the shuttle hum and wove the weft and clipped the thrum, beside the loom with droning drums she sang the weaving song. Threads on the thrum, prum. The cat's no more a weaver, a weaver, a weaver, an old and wrinkled weaver. For though she did no wrong, a witch hath changed the shape of her, that dwindled down and clothed in fur beside the hearth with droning purr. She thrums her weaving song, prum. The next one, well, prum three threads in the thrum, thrum, on and on. That even the animals that live with us know. They too were once us. This is another dream that constantly pops up in mankind's steady, steady flight from what he is and steady, steady fear. He thinks he might be. And in every religion, always pops up the head of the animal somewhere along the line. The animal that fell from grace and ceased to be a man. All of a sudden, the big nasturtiums rose in the night from the ocean's bed, rested a while in the light of the morning, turning the sand dunes tiger red. They climbed the statue of Abraham Lincoln, they covered it to the top. Our church's spire, Grandpa, Grandpa, come to the window, come to the window, our world's on fire. Big nasturtiums in the high Sierras, big nasturtiums in the lands below. Our trains are late, and our planes have fallen. And out in the ocean the whistles blow, over the fields and over the forests. Over the living. And yes, over the dead. I never expected the big nasturtiums to come in my lifetime, Grandpa said. The big nasturtiums. The big red nasturtiums. Now a little old lady out in Staten Island... It's true that Shepard makes no sense. But the question now hangs in air do you? Does Edward R. Murrow? Does Pandit Nehru? Does anything or anyone? A strange foreboding is o'er me. Idly fraught I have heard of an olden story that will not out of my thought The air is cool and darkling and the Rhine is still below The peak of the mountain is sparkling in evening The afterglow And there sits And there gleams a maiden So high and fair, with golden jewels laden, combing her golden hair. Have you noticed there has never been, to my knowledge, a myth of a man that lures to the death? Have you noticed? It is always a maiden, wondrous fair and golden. And even today, throughout all of our own little myths, there lurks that maiden, wondrous fair. Listen to Mike and Elaine there is that maiden, wondrous fair that lures to death on the rocks below. She combs her hair with a comb that is golden, and ever singing, ever singing is she, a song of mysterious, olden, mighty melody. It seizes with wildest sorrow the boatman ferrying by, and he wrecks not of rock nor of narrow, and he gazes only on high. I doubt not that the wave will devour the boat and the boatman ere long. And that was the Lorelei's power. And that was the Lorelei's song. Are you interested in who wrote that? That wasn't Edgar Guest. That want Nick Kenny. That was from Dorothy Kilgallen. to this magnificent piece written by the same man. Under the of the music is gay. The couples are gossiping loudly, and two are dancing whom nobody knows. They carry themselves so proudly. Now here, now there, they glide and sway in wave-like measures, beguiling. They bow to each other, and as they nod, she whispers, gently smiling. A water pink is hanging from your cap, my fair young dancer. It only grows in the depths of the sea. You are no mortal man, sir. You are a merman, and to lure these village maids your wish is. I knew you at once by your watery eyes and your teeth as sharp as the fishes. Now here, now there, they glide and sway. In wave-like measures, beguiling, they bow to each other. And as they nod, he answers, gently smiling. My lovely lady, tell me why your hand's so cold and shiny? Why is the border of your gown so damp and draggled and briny? I knew you at once by your watery eyes and your bow. So mocking and tricksy. You are never a daughter of earth, my dear. You are my cousin, the Nixie. The fiddles are silent. The dancing is done. They part with a ripple of laughter. They know each other too well, and will try to avoid such a meeting hereafter. (laughs) What Nixie? Merman? Luring to where? Where do you think you're going, Jack? And baby? Queenie? Where do you think you're going? Sit on my knee, my dear. We'll speak of mermen. Look into my watery eyes. And then listen to this. Also the fear of the dark, somber places. Drank lonesome water. Weren't but a tad then, up in a laurel, thick, digging for sang. Came on a place where the stones was holler. Something below them tinkled and rang. Dug where I heard it, dripping below me. Shoulda knowed better, shoulda been wise. Leaned down and drank it, clutchin' and gripping. The overhang clipped with the ferns in my eyes. T'were no tame water. I knowed in a minute, it must have been layin' there, projectin' round since winter went home. Must have laid like a cushion's where the feet of the blossoms was tucked in the ground. Tasted of heart leaf, and that smells the sweetest. Pawpaw and spice bush and wild briar rose. Must have been counting the heels of the spruce pines, the neighboring round where Angelica grows. I had drunk lonesome water. I knowed it in a minute. Never learnt nothing from then till today. Nothing worth learning, nothing worth knowing. I'm bound to the hills and I can't get away. Mean, sort of dried-up old groundhoggy feller, laying out cold here watching the sky poor as a whippoorwill bent like a grass blade counting up stars till they count too high. I know where the gray foxes uses up yonder. I know what'll cure you, of physic or chills, but I never been away from here, never got going. I've drunk lonesome water. I'm bound to the hills. And there are a lot of us who have drunk lonesome water. Some of us drink lonesome water and some of us don't. And those that drink lonesome water will never dance on Broadway. Those that drink lonesome water will never hang in the Metropolitan Museum. Those that drink lonesome water just lay on their backs and count the stars until the stars count up to a billion or more and then go on. And who knows when we drank it and how and how it tasted? But it did taste mighty sweet at first, and you never get the taste of it out of your mouth once you tasted it. Once you drank lonesome water, that's another way of saying it. (laughs) Of how come you're here sitting on your duff listening when you should be at Sardi's wearing green glasses. What the elfin ones are, those with the golden wand and the silver touch. How come you sit out there on the fire escape and look into the one's street below you drink lonesome water? Terrible old lonesome water. Are you interested in any more of these? <laughs> shoulder and an ivory bow in their hand seven fiddlers came with their fiddles a fiddling through the land and they fiddled a tune on their fiddles that none could understand everywhere you notice when that fear comes a sneaking up on you it's accompanied by music the maiden sings the trees hum and the fiddlers fiddle for none who heard their fiddling might keep his ten toes still Even the cripple threw down his crutches and danced against his will. Young and old, they all fell a-dancing while the fiddlers fiddled their fill. They fiddled down to the ferry, the ferry by Severn's side, and they stepped aboard the ferry, none else to row or guide, and deftly steered the pilot, and stoutly the oars they plied. Then suddenly, in mid-channel, these fiddlers ceased to row, and the pilot spake to his fellows in a tongue that none may know. Let us home to our fathers and brothers and the maidens we love, below. Then the fiddlers seized their fiddles and sang to their fiddles a song. We're coming, coming. Oh, brothers, to the home we have left so long, for the world still loves the fiddler, and the fiddler's tune is strong. Then they stepped from out the ferry into the Severn Sea, down into the depths of the water where the homes of the fiddlers be and the ferry boat drifted slowly forth to the ocean, free. But where those jolly fiddlers walk down into the deep, the ripples are never quiet, but forever dance and leap, though the severn sea be silent and the winds be all asleep. in any more of these? Oh, yes. There's another fear that man has. And that's the fear that he might change into something else. The fear that he might become what his worst fears say he is. No wonder we create Frankenstein monsters because that monster represents one part of us the night. No wonder we write of Dracula, the Count, who supped on others and their blood, because this represents another phase, another tiny facet. I am out on the wind, on the wild black night, on the wings of the owl, I take my flight, on the ghostly wings of the great white owl, and whether the night be fair or foul, or the moon be up, or the thunder growl, happy I be happy I be when the changing blood runs green in me. When the meek folk sleep in their dull, soft beds, I creep over roots that the weasel treads, where the squat green lamps of the toadstools glow, and only the fox knows the ways I go, and nobody knows the things I know. Wise I be, wise I be, when the changing blood runs green in Others slumber and do not wake. Thin voices call from the wet, wet rain break. And the child you cradled against your breast is out in the night. On the black wind's crest. For only the wild can give me rest. Rest. Only the wild can give me rest. Who can sit here and deny that Count Dracula was more interesting than anyone around him? Who can sit here and deny that Count Dracula did not live for that brief moment while he fluttered through the flame? Who cannot but silently, somehow, sullenly, Envy, Frankenstein's monster. Yes. Happy I be, happy I be when the changeling blood runs green in me. Sad I be, sad I be when the changeling blood runs green in me. I can just hear that wonderful little old lady... In forest hills saying what's this young man talking about what are you listening to in there <laughs> but the 15 year old kid who listens to me knows what i'm talking about daddy he's he ain't yet set that mold he knows about the wild things that go bump in the night and the dark shadows behind the overshoes in the closet Speaking of the dark shadows that go bump in the night, this is W.O.R. AM and FM in New York. Where the changeling blood runs green every half hour. And happy and sad we be. As the commercial log rises and falls with the ascending and the descending tides of man. <sighs> Are you sure you want any more? No, no. No, no, Ralph is tired. He wants to talk about baseball scores and football games. <laughs> Let me tell you, you know, it's a funny thing. No, no, I'm not going to be coerced into this. My, George, uh, the... I, I, I've watched. I've watched long and hard. And I've come to some conclusions about the looks on the faces of people when they're confronted with things which, for one reason or another, I don't think uh, the business of understanding is a matter of intellect. I think it is a matter of will and choice. And I also think that it is a matter that in many instances goes beyond that, which somebody told me an, an idiotic little gag, and uh, it kind of, kind of points this out. And I'm, I'm, I'll am i tell you where the gag was told to me. It was a terrible thing. I was down on my knees changing a tire in the rain. And this guy's standing over me with a flashlight. And he says, you know, this reminds me of a joke. I said, oh, yeah, it would. Only, only, this is an interesting facet of man. Men, I can say. That only men can laugh in the face of disaster. Women can't. I've never seen a woman who could. Not real disaster. It, it's the kind of humor that will make a guy go through three years of of training in the army, you know. He is kicked from pillar to post for the first four months taking his basic training. And then, you know, he goes from one thing to the other. And and each thing gets, it's like a rising crescendo of of indecency that is heaped upon him. One thing after the other, until he finally is stripped naked of everything, he has not even the slightest pin feather of society left back in... In that, in that little dark recess in the underarm of man. And there he is, you see. He's now naked. They put him on a boat that at one time was called the Ile de France, some beautiful ancient vessel that carried the steaming, orgiastic hordes to Europe and back. And they put him on a boat, and he goes all the way over, overseas someplace, And then they put him on another boat. They blow the whistle. He's charging up the beach, and he sees coming right down at him an 88 shell, and he knows it's all over. And in that last split second, he lasts his full head off just before the shell takes it off for good. (laughs) And I have seen him do it. Now, I know of no woman who could do this or does, and this is an interesting thing. I'm going to get a lot of indignant letters immediately from women claiming they do. Now, this is not, I'm not against, nor am I, uh, this is not a, an anti-woman or a pro-woman thing. Interestingly enough, any time you point out the difference, that there is a difference between men and women, women get mad and all men nod their heads. <laughs> it's fascinating, you know? And, and so, I, I, I'm down there on my knees, you see, and the, the rain is coming down and I'm changing a tire. I'm 400 miles away from any civilization or any air pump. And I'm working way down there in the mire. I think it's good for a man to have a flat tire occasionally. I mean a real flat in his in his powers, power steering, power windowed, power top monster. Once in a while, and I mean a flat where he's way out somewhere with no spare, where he's got to wrestle with the soil. Boom! And then... Instantly, his his has been scuttled. He goes, bloom, bloom, bloom. he feels the road for the first time in four years, and he gets out and he looks at this thing that's all flat and laying all over the ground there. And he said, "What's this?" He gets out his instruction book, and it says, "You have a flat tire. Here's what you do now: you take that big round shiny thing off, and you you take that other thing that's in the trunk there, that big long thing that rattles. You take that out and you stick it under your bumper, and you start to pump." And one of the most precarious things in today's world is pumping up a modern, gigantic Chris Kraft car up on one of those tiny, spindly jacks. They just ain't made to be jacked up. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like honestly, it's like putting matchsticks under a whale. And, and this thing is going up, and you finally get And I'm down there on my knees, you see, with this giant looming over me. And, of course, you know, there's a sense of impending doom there, too. And I'm taking off the tire, and it's raining. And the guy says, "This reminds me of a thing." I said, "What?" "This is a gag." I says, "Okay." And he says, uh, "Well, there were two there were two guys, you see, and they're they're in this home they're in this home for the, in, the for the incurably insane, and uh, they're working away on something. And uh, they're they're trying to change they're trying to change the the tire on a car." It's on the grounds there, and they're working around, and they're working away there, and they got the nuts and the bolts off. And it turns out that that one of the one of the bolts has been lost. And so one of the one of the guys stands up there and he says to the other guys, "I tell you what, let's do. Let's take one off of each one, and 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 we'll we'll get them all. We'll even them all up that way. You see, and there'll be one missing on each one. That way we won't have any trouble, which makes sense, technically. And so the guy looks up. He says, "Gee, that's a great idea," and the second one says, "Look, I may be insane, but I'm not stupid." Now that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. You see, we like to confuse the insane with the stupid, and then we like. And incidentally, I have found that many of the insane are the sanest I have ever met. It is the sanity, the very sanity, that drives them over the brink. This is another problem which we have yet come to grips with. But the thing that I have noticed is the wonderful, bored, stony face that comes upon a man when he is confronted with that which he never concerns himself with. The inexplicable, the unknown, the secret, sneaking fears. He becomes then bored, interestingly enough. And I guess this is nature's way of protecting the fool. (laughs) is the only thing I can say about that, you know? It's, it's what they say about about drunks and what else is it that nature protects? Well, I also say that it protects something else and and it, it it's, it's this curtain that descends this wonderful curtain of righteousness and total knowledge that descends over the complete boob who who knows exactly how he's going to vote and why and figures that he has his life all calculated out and he knows exactly what it's about and where it's leading him. And yet, you know, it's interesting, I knew a boob one time. A real boob. I mean, what I call a boob. I mean, an intelligent... you know what I, you know what I mean by the boob? The guy who, who will hear the song of the changeling and say, what's this idiot talking about? But yet, at the same time, who, who seems to operate well in the society. You know, the, 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 the more boob you become, I found in our society, and when I say boob, I'm using it in the mankenian terms. The more boobish you are, the better you will make it in our society, in almost all the society, because there's never any question, you know, about what to do or what not to do. And so, the, the, the interesting thing about the boob, though, is that he has his doubts, occasionally. And when he has his doubts, he generally attacks those around him who cause the doubt to come into being, you know, this is a fascinating thing. Like the time I'm sitting in a sales meeting, and the, the sales meeting is drumming on and on, and they're talking about Operation Dynamic, which was uh, going to be our new operation for the fall. This you know, is going to put us right over the top. Operation Dynamic, where these big charts and graphs and, and all the, the slides and the little films and stuff. This is, a, By the way, this is one of the major industries now in our, in our abstract world, is the presentation where one man presents something to another man. Actually, it's one group presents something to another group, and it's a kind of self-affirmation thing, where they all sit around waiting for the hosannas to rise and the hallelujahs. And if the hallelujahs are scattered, then they bring out another prayer rug and try again, you see. And the gods become ourselves, you see. We hosanna each other or hallelujah each other or strike each other with bolts of lightning. And so we're constantly propitiating the gods with our various presentations of one kind or another. Our films and our excoriating shouts to the heavens, constantly hoping that that the gods will smile, namely the sales manager this time. And then the sales manager hopes that the agency reps will smile. And the agency reps hope that the sponsors will smile. And the sponsors hope that the public will smile. And the public hopes that the TV set will smile. And then it goes all the way around, and the full circle comes, and it is nothing but a gigantic, an ancient druidic ring of supplicants, all of them looking up into the darkening sky, waiting for the message. But that's neither here nor there. And so, but it is, you see, here and there. I'm sitting there in the middle of the sales meeting, and this, this clown suddenly says, well, what? Uh, he, he raises his hand, and he says, what, what happened to, uh, to Operation uh, Windfall? That was last year's operation. See, that was going to bring us t- into the safe harbor. <laughs> and there's a dead silence. And so he says, "Well, this is uh, this is a new year. We have Operation Dynamic now." He says, "Yeah, but what? I mean, it's a new year, but it really isn't. We're all here. It's just me and you. And and the year is just a thing we thought of. Actually, you know, the sun came up and the sun came down, and now we got Operation Dynamic." And there's a kind of a funny chuckle. And then after the guy leaves, about three of them are getting there. this says, what is this, this beatnik idiot? <laughs> oh, what a pain in the duff. <laughs> and anyway, I had this friend who was a, who was a boob. And uh, he was a true boob. In that he, uh, that never, never a doubt ever... Ruffled the placid stream of his existence, and one day this boob friend of mine, of course, he was. He, uh, whenever any of us would would talk about the world at large and in general uh, about things that be and the things that aren't, he would say, "Oh, come on, we what is this Beatniks? Ah, you know, interesting now. Anything that that smacks of trouble is now dismissed as Beatnik talk." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Oh, daddy And so uh, this guy, this, this is a, a kind of an interesting little... Uh, I don't know whether it has a moral or not, but this, this boob friend of mine, of course, naturally, he was important. All boobs are. And uh, he was one of the guiding forces in the organization. Well, one day, he gets out of his car on the wrong side and got hit by a cab. It knocked him 400 feet in the air and 35 feet <laughs> down a side street. <laughs> it was a perfect divot shot. And uh, they picked him up and they took him off to the hospital and they put things all over him and they wrapped him up and poured concrete around him and made him completely immobile and put pulleys over his head. And then they put a chart above his head and the chart kept going up and down. And it went down oftener than went up. And he's up there looking at it, see. And I came to see him after they finally allowed visitors to come in. And he has a new look in his eye. (laughs) And <laughs> I'm looking at him, and uh, and he's 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 lying there. And I said uh, something to the effect, "How you feeling, Charlie?" He says, "What difference does it make?" I says, "What do you mean? What difference does it make? How do you feel, you idiot?" He says, "Well, I guess all right." And so he slowly mended. He finally he finally made it back to the land of the living. He came back to the office. He was there two weeks and he had a fist fight with our boss. The <laughs> about the very thing that we had been talking about for years. This business of Operation Dynamic. Well, he had joined us. Now, I don't know whether he was worse off or better off. You see, I can't tell. He had drunk lonesome water. This is what he had done. You know there was a there was a fascinating little item, and I'm going to I'm going to read this item to you. Don't go away because this this one this one. Uh, no, it's a story about a guy named Oliver Starling who put in three false alarms in a row here in Manhattan the other day. <laughs> I'm more and more convinced that your name has to do with what you are let me see if i can find this piece oh, this is a great piece now don't go away it's a clipping it's a clipping that'll make your hair stand on end a oh, minute. No, don't go away no can't find i can find everything i don't want every time i Mm-hmm. Look at all this jazz. Why not loud. Where do they all go? <laughs> Complete fiasco. I'm always amused when somebody writes me. About every three days, somebody writes me and says, Hey, I met a guy who writes your script for you, Shepard. <laughs> Try not Well, I'd like to meet him myself. He's the a, a reason why I'm not getting anywhere. I'd like to meet that guy that writes this. No, I wish I could find it because hold on here. Yeah. No, that's not it. Oh yes, here's something I wanted to mention. You know, thirty seconds after I go off the air there will be three copies of that thing here. All hanging onto my coffee cup. Right in front of my nose, see, by magic. You see, this is what makes a guy believe in the you know, it makes him wonder. There's this kind of thing here. Here here you go. No. Oh yeah. Oh, there's one little interesting thing that came out the other day. I'm sitting there looking at a magazine and it's a it's a magazine about the US Bureau of Standards. I mean, this is an interesting bureau when you start to think of it. Uh, We we recently had to appoint a committee to find out what the standards of America are. And we've got a whole bureau devoted to standards. And so here, you know, there's there's pictures of guys sitting there weighing things and guys with, with official foot measurements and guys with meters of all sorts. And there in the middle, this is the most enigmatic picture I have seen in years. And I clipped it out and brought it in. It's a fantastic little picture. There's a very scholarly-looking guy uh, who looks something like Douglas Edwards. You know, Douglas Edwards Curtis, the the leader of the Sunday school class when he was nine, has become the news commentator. You know, this look. And uh, this Douglas Edwards-looking kind of guy is weighing something, and he's writing things down on a scale. He's, He's making a notation, and it says U.S. Bureau of Standards Photo. And you see behind him all the way to the ceiling and all around him, nothing but files with all kinds of little tags, and he's there weighing things. And in front of him are three packages of file cards. You get this, with rubber bands bound around them, three packages of file cards. One is a complete file cabinet, you know, the little metal drawer that pulls out. There are two packages. One of them is on the scale, and one is to the other side of the scale. Now, you got it? Three packages of files. And very plainly, you can read what the files are about. One of them is marked sin. And that is the one that has the biggest file card. You know? And then, you see underneath that, you see two file drawers, each one of them marked love. And on top of it is an extra package of file cards marked love. That means that there are two and a half drawers of love in the Bureau of Standards, one drawer of sin, and then the real kicker, there's a little package of file cards that is about an inch and a half thick with a rubber band around it marked Eternity. (laughs) And and I'm telling you, I'm reading this, I'm I'm looking at this thing, and here's this very dry article, you see, about, about weights and measures and scales and... Wavelength measurements and all that jazz. And in the middle of it all, here is the guy, and he's weighing the package of cards that say eternity. Somehow the Bureau of Standards is more concerned with the weight of eternity than the meaning of it, apparently. And he's weighing it there. And I thought, what are they doing? Editorializing again down there? What are they preparing for me? I would like to get into that file card, the one marked sin. Do you realize that there's a whole file card, a whole cabinet full of... Things on sin. It's like it's like that little that little note that I read the other day. There was a guy out in the Pacific Coast somewhere. Get me get me my get me my ominous guitar music. Or what, what do you got up there, Ralph? You got something fairly ominous there? No, no, I think it is not not ominous. Get, 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 just whatever you got there. That's all right. That's all right. We make it easy for everybody here. Okay. Oh no, that'll never do. That'll never do. That's Roseland Ballroom. Don't don't, don't get mad, Ralph. We're all working here together. Now try that next one. It's all right. It's it's all fun. Just just let it... See, pretend that you're fishing and you got a nibble and he got away. Okay? (laughs) Ah, yes, this makes it fit. Of course, this makes it fit. All right, I'd like to tell you what one of our fellow citizens did recently. In case you're interested in the nature of man and what makes sense and what doesn't. You know, the only function of the artist is to try to make it make sense, which he never quite fully achieves. There is no such thing as a fulfilled artist. If he's an artist, he is constantly running after a retreating electric rabbit. Constantly running after it. I mean, so, look, lady out there in Staten Island, I don't know what makes sense either. I'm not sure you know. Someday I'd like to invite you over to have you tell me. We'll go down to shafts and we'll have a raisin bun and we'll talk about that nice Mr. Eisenhower, okay? And about how it makes sense. I remember this fantastic photo speaking of that nice Mr. Eisenhower. And it was done in complete deadpan, it shows Ike on the golf course, a photo. This was not an editorial thing, it was just a photo. He's wearing that white cap and sitting next to him is a is a is a rich billionaire, uh, one of the <laughs> one of the constant friends and and uh, they're sitting in this little caddy cart with a little umbrella over him, and a guy has come up. You can see an official-looking guy with a briefcase, and he's given Mr. Eisenhower some papers. And it says, Ike keeps constant touch with Congo situation while on golf course. (laughs) I said, yes, sir, Daddy, that's a pure American. (laughs) I could just see him. He reads it.